0: Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one. God's one this is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back. And to those of you who are new for the first time here at The Savior Said, welcome to The Savior Said. This is going to be episode 45. The assignment is for November 18th through 24th. We are talking about the book of James and the title of the assignment is Be Ye Doers of the Word and Not Hearers Only. And it's perfect because the book of James talks a lot about combining works with grace, so you hear the word, you've got grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, but you need to apply those works to it as well. Now before we jump on in, I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite Come Follow Me Facebook groups, the Come Follow Me Principle Challenge Live. They've added live onto the end of that now because they've got all kinds of really awesome resources, but one of the latest resources that they are putting into place there in the group is they have all kinds of live interactions where they go, you know, Facebook Live or whatever. You go live there on Facebook with all these different people, podcasters, you know, YouTubers who are all doing the Come Follow Me curriculum all at the same time. And so you get to go see some of these voices that you've been listening to for so long. And they were so kind to... Invite me to do their live, I guess, presentation this past Wednesday. So I got to go and be live there in the Come Follow Me Principal Challenge Live Facebook group. So definitely a shout out to them. They're awesome. Search them up. All you got to do is search for Come Follow Me Principal Challenge Live and it will come up and just join the group got great resources, and they always list the Savior Said in their podcast rundown of the week. And I'm so grateful for their support. So just wanted to give them a shout out. Okay, so let's jump into James. Before we even get started, who was James? Well, This is one of those topics that biblical scholars like to take out and, like, play with and, you know, mess around with from time to time when they've got nothing else to do. Kind of the same way, like, historians like to take out, like, the JFK assassination and kind of, like, you know, spitball about, like, who could possibly have assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, whatever. Because no one really knows who wrote the book of James. Like, there were so many Jameses around back in ancient Israel in this time frame that we don't know who really wrote it. We don't really even know like, when it was actually published, and because of that, it was actually very difficult to get it canonized into church scripture back in the early days of the early Christian church. Because they really weren't sure where it came from, or, you know. But again, truth does not stop being truth just because we don't know where it comes from. To me, and it also seems like to our church, and the Come Follow Me even mentions this, it makes the most sense that it would be James, the brother of Jesus, Which is interesting because if we remember when we went back into John and we were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles in John, a part of John that talks about his brethren did not believe him. So we know when Jesus was alive on earth that his brothers did not believe who he was, they didn't believe in his ministry. Yet yeah, we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, it says, after that, it's listing all the different people and different groups of people that Christ has appeared to after his death. And in 7, it says, after that, he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. So it seems like Christ had a private meeting with James after he was resurrected. So I don't know at what point... James converted, if he converted, you know, before Christ's death there at the end of his ministry, if he converted during the process of Christ's death and his resurrection kind of, you know, brought him to the truth, or if this meeting with Christ after his resurrection was the thing that brought James to the truth. So I think it's interesting to see that as well, the transformation of James through Jesus Christ. We know at one point he did not believe, but now he believes and he had a solo visit from Jesus Christ, his brother, which I think is really cool. So that's who we think possibly authored the book of James. Now, some other interesting things about the book of James is that it's completely different from any of the other epistles that we have read so far. Um, It's a whole lot more like Proverbs. It's got lots of little nice sound bites, lots of little good quotes, lots of little good pieces of advice. It's very much like, you know, the ancient Israel version of Dear Abby, um, except for there's no question. It's just like the answers. And I know that's me making light of it because there's some beautiful doctrine in there and some really good doctrine in there, but it's just a little bit of a different flavor than the fiery kind of epistles that we've had from Paul so far. For me, it was a nice change. I liked that a lot, and I found it was exactly what I needed in this particular time of my life. I didn't need anything big and heavy hitting me over the head, but I just needed the small and simple pieces and doctrine of Jesus Christ, which is what James offers us. Now, the other thing that's interesting about James is it doesn't mention Jesus Christ very much. In fact, there's only two references to Jesus Christ. The first one is in James 1, and it's in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he mentions him there. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, my brethren, have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he talks about his Lord Jesus Christ there in chapter 2 as well. Those are the only two times that it mentions Jesus Christ. It doesn't mention his death, or his resurrection. It doesn't mention, you know, anything really of his ministry. It's just kind of like the doctrine of what Christ would have taught there during his ministry. So maybe it could be that James was there during the entire ministry, maybe didn't believe him, but the seeds that Christ was sowing were being sown in his soul and in his mind, and we are now reaping the fruits of that, you know? So, and again, a very interesting book because it is so different from the other epistles, and I think that's why there was such kind of a debate in the early Christian church of should we include this, should we not include this, because it is such a kind of different flavor. However, the doctrine contained in the book of James, even though it's kind of advicey and it's kind of, you know, they don't mention Christ much there in James, even though, beyond all that, The doctrine contained in the book of James is incredibly powerful. And we in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints know that better than anyone else because there was a boy, a 14-year-old boy, who went into the book of James. And he read James 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. And that 14-year-old boy took that question of what church he should join to the Lord, and we know what happened next. God the Father and his Son appeared to him, told him not to join any of the churches. That set into motion the whole restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So from this crazy book that doesn't seem to belong, that has kind of this weird advice kind of thing going on, came one of the most powerful incidents of our time and one of like the most life-altering pieces of advice for anyone who has ever joined this church or been part of this church. So um, don't discount it because it is so different. Don't discount it because there's powerful stuff within the book of James. And we're going to go in and start off kind of talking about that and come follow me. In the introduction, it says sometimes just one verse of scripture can change the world. Like James 1, 5 did with Joseph Smith, right? Joseph says, it seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of his heart when he read that James 1, 5. And thus inspired, Joseph acted on James's admonition and sought wisdom from God through prayer. God did indeed give liberally, giving Joseph one of the most remarkable heavenly visitations in human history, the first vision. The vision changed the course of Joseph's life and led to the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ on the earth. All of us are blessed today because Joseph Smith read and acted on James one five. What will you find as you study the epistle of James? Perhaps a verse or two will change you or someone you love. You may find guidance as you seek to fulfill your mission in life. You may find encouragement to speak kindly or to be more patient. Whatever inspires you, let these words enter into every feeling of your heart. So after I read this week's selection, I went through and I started reading, you know, going back and rereading, and I'm like, what is going to be that one piece of advice that, you know, really changes me? Or that, you know, can help me with my earthly mission? Or can help me, you know, with whatever challenge it is that I'm going through? And it was interesting, the thing that came to me, the verse that really stood out to me, because there were a lot that stood out to me with, you know, my current struggles and stuff that I'm going through. But if I were to choose one for, you know to kind of impact my entire life, or to kind of sum up my entire life and what I think my life's mission kind of is, um, I chose James 5.16. And it's going to sound kind of funny when I read it, but let me explain it. So James 5.16, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the reason I chose that one is because I think my Father in Heaven gave me the gifts of my faults and my weaknesses, but he also gave me the gift to be able to not be embarrassed by them or try and hide them, but to share them with others. You know, I talk to you guys very frequently about the ways that I am faulty, the ways that I am impatient, the ways I am imperfect, um, the struggles I have going on in my life, And so I think that is a gift from my Heavenly Father to be able to talk about that. And I feel like it's so, so important that we do that, that we confess the things that we struggle with, the ways that we are imperfect to each other, because by doing that, we allow others to open up as well. And again, it helps us all realize that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a hospital for the imperfect. It's a hospital for the broken. It is not a museum for saints. And so... That is something that I really try and emphasize in my life, in this podcast, and just in my everyday. that I am not perfect. Please don't ever expect me to be. It reminded me a lot of the book A Wrinkle in Time, and in the particular chapter that this quote comes from, um, that it reminded me of, they're getting ready to go to a planet, and the kids that are going to this planet, they're very unprepared for this planet, and so, you know, the women that they're working with are trying to prepare them to go on this mission to this planet and the quote is meg i give you your faults my faults meg cried your faults but i'm always trying to get rid of my faults yes mrs what's said however i think you'll find they come in very handy on camazots and i have to think that our father in heaven probably had a similar conversation with us before he sent us to this earth um, that he gave us our faults, because in the end of the book, The Wrinkle in Time, you know, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but in the end, it is Meg's faults that allow her to kind of save the day. I would like to think that our Father in Heaven, in the same way, gave us faults before we came here to Earth, and that we're supposed to share those faults with each other because it helps each other out. So um, that it also reminded me of that. And I also love that it talks about being healed. Because here's the thing that the Gospel of Jesus Christ offers us. Not just a physical healing, although it does give us lots of physical comfort. I think sometimes when I'm going through really hard stuff, His grace is there to kind of lift me up. But I believe that's talking about spiritual healing. And also, when you apply the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to your life, when you live the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you go through that really hard stuff You live those trials, but you have Christ with you, and that helps you get through a lot, and it helps healing along the way. Now, when you have a wound that is healed, it's a whole lot different from the wound never happening at all. Even though the wound is healed, there's still scars. We are not going to come out of this life unscarred, but we are going to come out of this life healed because of Jesus Christ. And we can look back at those scars and say, yeah, that was that time. That I went through that really hard thing, and Christ was with me. And let those scars be a reminder of the faults that you have, the things that you've gone through, and the ways that Christ has succored you as you've gone through them. And that continues, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, I would also like to add a woman, you know I do, availeth much. So, prayer is a powerful force for good. James is reminding us that prayer of a righteous person can change the world. We saw that again with Joseph Smith. The prayer of one righteous person can literally change the world. What are you going to pray today that will change the world? You know, that's kind of the question that came to my mind. Um, So that's why I chose that scripture to kind of rock my world. Um, There were other ones within the book of James that also kind of rocked my world as well, but that was the one that really kind of hit me over the head, I think, this week. So, all right, let's go back to Come Follow Me. I know, I've kind of gone off on a rabbit trail. I'm sorry. Thank you for coming with me. Okay, so the first section is Who is James? We've covered that okay the second section patient endurance leads to perfection waiting can be hard president dieter f uckdorf taught we want what we want and we want it now And that reminded me a lot of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Sorry, guys. I'm like going off on a children's literature bend, I know, in this episode. But it reminds me of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Veruca Salt saying, I want it now! You know, I feel like a lot of times in my life that I'm like that with Heavenly Father. You know, Heavenly Father, this is what I need. This is what I want. And I want it now. And thank goodness my Heavenly Father looks down at me and says, um... You know, Lexi, you think that's what you need, and you think that's what you want, and you think now is the perfect time for that, but it's not. And so I'm going to give you the gift of your faults instead, (laughs) right? And so thank goodness that he knows me better than I know myself because he does, and he gives exactly what I need and exactly the time that I need it. So, continuing on with President Uchtdorf, therefore, the very idea of patience may seem unpleasant, because we're waiting for something, and we think we need it now, but our Heavenly Father knows better, and, you know, we get frustrated. So, it comes from his talk, Continue in Patience, and this talk was really good. As I was reading it, um, it talked about when he was transferring over to school in West Germany when he was younger, and he had been going to a school that had been teaching him Russian, and he'd been learning all these different subjects, and so then when he comes over to West Germany, the school there was very difficult for him. He had lots of different classes than from what he was used to taking, including English, and English was very hard for him, which I have to think it's one of those things where, yeah, it was really hard for him, but think about how much we benefit now from him having learned English. He has a very great command of the English language and I'm so grateful that he went through this thing that was trying for him and trying for his patience. He says, From that experience, I learned that patience was far more than simply waiting for something to happen. Patience required actively working towards worthwhile goals and not getting discouraged when results didn't appear instantly or without effort. There is an important concept here. Patience is not passive resignation, nor is it failing to act because of our fears. Patience means active waiting and enduring. It means staying with something and doing all that we can, working, hoping, and exercising faith, bearing hardship with fortitude, even when the desires of our hearts are delayed. Patience is not simply enduring, it is enduring well. I love that. Thank you, President Ukhdor, for for that um, because that is something that's really inspiring to me, and it's something that I needed to hear. Um, you know, with my particular trial that I've got going on right now with job and everything like that, um, I'm not I'm not sure why I am where I'm am working right now. The school that I'm at, I'm not sure if this is so, some place I'm supposed to be long term or if this is, you know, God has me kind of in a waiting area, kind of waiting room for something else is supposed to come. I'm not sure, but I know that I have to be patient because this is where he's placed me in the season of my life. And so this to me tells me not to just drift in and out of my everyday, but to show up. Show up mentally, show up physically, show up spiritually ready for each day at my school to help the kids in any way that I can. And that's really what it inspired me to do. Um, Going back into Come Follow Me, it says, What would you say was James' main message about patience? And it's referring to James 1, 2 through 4, which is actually really beautiful. Um, It was another runner-up for one of those scriptures that I'm like, okay, which one's really going to impact my life? This was definitely one of the runners-up. It's like the second scripture in the entire book. It starts out, James 1, 2. Here we go. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I love that so much. And I actually, in verse 2 where it talks about when... Be patient and account it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Actually, it was like, well, temptations I don't necessarily know work super well in that particular context. So I went into Bible Hub, which is really good because it gives you all the different translations of the Bibles like that are ever possibly ever made, and most of the translations come out as count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. When you have different trials. And that to me makes more sense because then in verse 3 where it says the trying of your faith worketh patience. So trials. Um, Count it all joy when you have trials. Which is really, really hard to do guys. I'm here to tell you. It's really hard to do to have joy in your trials when you're right there in the middle of them. I especially, I get a really bad attitude about things. I'm like, why is this? Why me? Why now? <laughs> you know, I get really whiny to my Heavenly Father, I think, sometimes in the midst of my trials, instead of being joyful. Um, and then choosing joy instead. And so that's what I'm really trying to do and work positively on um, in my life right now. So, each way, you know, each day on my way to work, I and this sounds so hokey, I know, but I have these little positive affirmations, like a little positive affirmation soundtrack where it's like, you know, you are full of love and you radiate love and then you say it out loud and I'm, I am full of love and I radiate love. Uh, I am full of light and I radiate light. I'm a divine being and I see the divinity in others, you know, like those positive affirmations, which sounds kind of, I know, again, hokey, but I feel like it works and I feel like then I get to work and I do see the divine love that I have for others and I do see the light in others and um, it just helps me kind of, find, think, find that joy in the middle of a trial. Come Follow Me continues, what additional insights do you have after reading the rest of President Uchtdorf's message? So I love that he said about enduring it well and being actively engaged in different things while you're waiting. And I tried to think of a time in my life that I could share with you guys that I was going through a trial and I endured it well, and there was reasons for it and things like that. And so, you know, I've talked a lot about being chronically ill, so I'm sorry if you guys are, like, rolling your eyes and, like, oh, she's talking about this again. I'm sorry. I apologize. Like, I just, you know, it's what I keep coming back to because it was such a big deal to me when I was going through it. There was a time where I was undiagnosed, and this was, you know, about... 10 plus years ago that I was undiagnosed and going from doctor to doctor, I had just constant pain in my abdomen that like never went away. It never got any better. It was constantly hurting. I was fatigued all the time. I knew my hormones were whacked out because like, you know, I would fly off the handle at just like the littlest thing. And so I knew something was wrong. I knew deep down in my heart that something was wrong. And so I went from doctor to doctor. doctor trying to find someone who would tell me what is wrong and again and again and again tests would come back negative they'd send me for ultrasounds come back negative they sent me to a GI doctor and they did all kinds of scans and scopes and stuff like that everything came back negative there was clinically as they could find nothing wrong with me and I got really frustrated with it as you can imagine being undiagnosed is one of the most frustrating heartbreaking things that I have ever experienced in my life because you don't know whether to trust yourself or not Um, you don't know if you're making it all up in your head or if it's real you don't know you know, if other people believe you because you don't have anything to show them, you have no tests saying, Hey, I actually have this thing. You know, the doctors are telling you, you know, maybe you need to go see like a psychiatrist because this really might be all in your head. Um, that actually happened. And I mean, so it's, it's terrifying. Well, after a couple years of this, um, you know, and in this particular case, enduring it well I don't know that I did particularly well what I learned though was to be persistent and to trust my gut that I knew something was wrong and just to keep going back month after month and um, keep fighting for what I knew was there and then they did find a softball sized tumor full of they didn't know what so they sent me in for laparoscopic surgery and it turned out now graphic warning, I'm, I'm warning you here, endometriosis is what they found. And when you have endometriosis, when you do go through all this medical stuff, you get very used to talking about body parts and stuff like that. So I'm going to do that and it doesn't bother me at all. But if you do get bothered by medical stuff, I'm just giving you a heads up that the next, you know, maybe minute or so is going to be about that. So um, they go into surgery, and to find this, like, little tumor thing that's growing that finally showed up on an ultrasound, a CAT scan, I think is where it showed up. And I go into surgery, and I come out, and... My husband's like, they didn't take it out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, the doctor wants to talk to you. So the doctor comes in and says, you have endometriosis stage four. Like you are covered in endometriosis. And endometriosis is um, tissue that's like the uterine lining, but it's not exactly like. It's a little bit different histologically, and so it was growing everywhere inside my abdomen. I mean, it was on my kidneys. It was on my bladder. It was on, you know, my bowel, and because it goes through these cycles where it inflames and then it kind of contracts again, it causes scar tissue because of all the inflammation, and so All of my organs were adhered to each other. And so every time it inflamed, that was why I was in so much pain. And that's why the pain never went away, even though, you know, I was going through cycles and stuff like that. The pain never went away because it was adhesions everywhere and because it was so prolific that it was was just crazy the way my body had been contorted because of this disease. And it was so nice to just be able to say, oh my gosh, I have concrete evidence of what has been going on in my body this whole time. This trial and this patience that I've had to have this whole time, the persistence that I gained through that, I was then able to turn around and use again a second time when the same thing started happening. Different symptoms, but an undiagnosed illness happened several years ago. It turned out to be an autoimmune thing, which autoimmune diseases are very hard to pin down. But what I learned from the first time of having an undiagnosed condition was that I needed to research like a crazy person. And not only that, but I needed to track my own test results, get copies of all my own test results. I needed to get copies of all my own surgery notes, get copies of all the doctor files that I could, because you're legally allowed to have all that, and then track it yourself. Because it was a weird white blood cell count that I found in one of my test results that led them to do the CT scan that found that weird softball-sized tumor of endometriosis that led to the whole discovery of what was going on. And so I was actually the one that caught it. So again, when I'm undiagnosed, I'm asking for all my test results. I'm doing research like crazy. I'm joining groups online for various different diseases that kind of fit some of my symptoms and learning about those diseases and, you know, stuff like that and trying to endure it well and be actively engaged while I'm going through this trial. And the second time that I went through being undiagnosed was probably the hardest. The first time was frustrating because I knew something was wrong, but I didn't really know if something was wrong. Was it in my head or not? The second time I knew something was wrong and I was having all kinds of flashbacks to being undiagnosed previously. Um, And it was just, I mean, it was, it almost broke me mentally, I think. Um, It was a really, really hard time for me. Thank goodness I had coping skills that I learned from being undiagnosed that first time and learning how to work with doctors, learning how to track the different data from my different tests and how it changed over time. We were able to actually finally figure out what was wrong and they found part of my thyroid had grown up to the size of like a potato in my neck and no one had found that for like a year and a half um, you know that was something else that we were able to track and find because of you know graphing all those test results and stuff like that so um, those were skills that I learned from those two different trials and being patient But not only just sitting there and twiddling my thumbs and being like, oh, this is going to, you know, figure itself out, but actively going in and getting my hands in the middle of whatever trial it was that I was in and kind of, you know, involving myself in that trial and in finding a solution to it. Now, because of those experiences, when I have friends come to me and say, oh, I'm having this test done, I'm like, yep, I've had that test done, and it is horrible. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Or, you know, oh, I've got this going on. I'm like, oh, have you have you thought about this? Like, have you read this article in this journal? Because this might help you out. I don't know. You know, and so having that empathy for those who are struggling with illness and having that empathy for those who are undiagnosed, because it is so frustrating, and I know it, something that came from those trials. So I know that was long-winded. I'm sorry, but I hope that there was something in there that benefited you because I felt very strongly I needed to talk about it. I still do. I still feel very strongly that I needed to talk about it. So I hope whoever needed to hear that, that you got it. Okay. Alright, next section. Faith requires action. Yes, I'm so excited about this section. Okay, so how do you know if you have faith in Jesus Christ? So let's talk about that. I was thinking about my faith in Jesus Christ and how it has changed over the course of my lifetime. You know, I was thinking back when I was a teenager, and you are exposed to so much more temptation when you're a teenager, Um, I really began to see Jesus Christ as kind of an eraser in my life, Um, that I could come to Him with my sins and I could be forgiven, that He could take my sins upon Him and, you know, they would no longer be mine. And so I really kind of gained a testimony and had faith in Him in that particular instance of my life. But I found as I grow older and older and mature in different ways that I start gaining faith in different aspects of my Lord and Savior. You know, as I got older and became, you know, a college-age young adult, I was very very lonely for different reasons, but I was very, very lonely. I felt very isolated and I really gained a testimony of my savior as my friend, as someone who was always there and would never leave me. And that is a testimony that has got me through many hard times in my life. As I was struggling with mental illness, I gained a testimony of my Savior as a comforter and as a light in my life to help kind of guide me out of the darkness, even in the darkest of times. Later on, you know, as I've struggled as a, you know, married woman and as a mom, I've gained testimonies of His grace because I know I've hit walls where I can't keep going and His grace lifts me up and lifts me through it. And so, you know, it's interesting to me the way that I keep... Gaining different testimonies of the different facets of our Savior. And I'm sure that there are more that I'm going to gain throughout the course of my life through different times and trials. And the one that has really stood out to me, the faith that I've gained in my Lord and Savior this year as we've done Come Follow Me, I think is the role that He has in our lives as a teacher, And also the way that he taught his disciples, the way that he taught his followers, and also the way he taught those who didn't follow him, who didn't believe in him, and how he kept loving them anyways. And I'm able to take that and use that when I am at school and when I'm teaching kids who may or may not want to hear what I'm teaching them about, and reaching out to them and following his example there. You know, and so that's been something that I have been able to really, I guess, use in my life, not only like theoretically what we've studied this year, but actually apply it to my life in the situation and time where I am in my life. And that's really, I think, how my faith has grown in Him in this particular instance this year. And I think it's those works because Come Follow Me asks, How do your works demonstrate your faith in God? And so I think by taking what I have learned from Christ, His teaching strategies, His teaching methods, and applying it at school when I'm teaching, I think that's showing how my works are demonstrating my faith in God, because I believe that that's the best way to interact with my students. And it's interesting because I actually had a co-worker advise me at the beginning of the year, she's like, you're just gonna have to be mean. You have to get your inner mean girl out, and you have to be mean to the kids, and you just have to, you know, kind of yell at them to make them behave, and um, that was kind of the advice that I was given. And I found, as I went and I studied Christ's teaching techniques, that it's the exact opposite. That when I identify the one child and identify them as the one, you know, even though they are the one causing the problem, when I identify them as the one and go up to them individually, and with a quiet voice talk about what they have done what they need to do to make it better and you know kind of go on that that kind of way i get much better reactions out of the kids i get a much better relationship with the kids and by putting the works of christ or putting my faith in christ and my faith in him and his role as a teacher into works, I find that the relationships with my students increases exponentially. And so I, I think that was kind of a way that I saw the, my works demonstrating my faith in God. But then it goes on too, and this is the part I'm really, really excited about, is Rahab. Um, yeah, we're not going to talk about Abraham. I feel like we've done enough. I want to talk about Rahab. Rahab is one of my favorite women in the Old Testament. So um, I want to talk about Rahab. I think she's so cool. So, we read Rahab's story in Joshua 2, so we're gonna kind of go through it a little bit in Joshua chapter two, verse one. And I'll warn you, there's um, the place where they're from, kind of sounds like a bad word. So you know, if you're reading it with your kids, don't be surprised when you go through verse one and you're like, "Whoa, okay." So how do I say that? Um, I'm just gonna skip it. I don't even want to, I don't even want to say it here on the podcast. All right. So Joshua sends two men in to spy secretly into Jericho, and it says, "Go view the land." even Jericho, and they went and they came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Okay, so let's talk about this whole situation first that's that's set up. So Joshua wants to take out Jericho, and so he's sending spies in to kind of get the lay of the land, kind of figure out where everything is, where the weak parts are, that kind of thing. And so Rahab is a harlot, Um, biblical scholars, it's another thing that they like to argue over, like, oh she was actually really an innkeeper. No no, everything I have read when they go back and they translate the Hebrew word that they use for her, even in other writings where, you know, the Greek and things like that um, she's always called a harlot which bless her heart because she stops being a harlot later on in life, we're going to talk about that but she's still always known as Rahab the harlot. I mean, girlfriend cannot just get rid of that title, I hate that for her but um, at this particular point in her life she was a harlot. Um, And so So her house apparently, you know, there's the city walls, the city walls of Jericho, the walls of Jericho around the city, and her house was right up against the walls of Jericho. And so a really good place for a harlot, if she's operating an inn, and I'm saying that with quotation marks, um, more likely a brothel, when the men would come in to the walls, I mean, she's right there, perfect for, you know, her particular trade that she's in, right? And also, it would be a really good spot for these two spies to go in, because there'd be all kinds of people coming in and out they would get all kinds of information because you know it's kind of a shady place so people aren't really going to be super guarded you know so they're a little bit more freer with their information so it was really smart I think of these guys to go into this um I guess Rahab's house right we'll just say that and somehow the king of Jericho gets word that these two spies are in Rahab's house you know maybe someone who is there goes out and does tell the king. And in Joshua 2, verse 2, it says, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither in the night of the children of Israel to search out the country. And in 3, And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come unto thee, which are entered into thine house. For they be come to search out all the country. And Rahab, in 4, The woman took the two men, and she hid them, and said thus, "'Well, there came men unto me, and I was not whence they were. "'I didn't know who they were. "'And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, "'when it was dark, they went out. "'Whither the men went, I would not.' Pursue them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. Like she's like, I don't know where they went, but they probably went that way. Go that way. Go look for them that way. Right, that's what she's saying in verse five, and in six it says, but actually she brought them up to the roof of her house and she hid them with stalks of flax. So it's like that long weedy stuff that she hid them underneath because it was kind of harvest time, right? And it says she had laid it out above her roof to dry it out to to be able to store it. And in 7 it says, And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And in 8, And before they were laid down, she came up unto them on the roof. So before she hides them, Rahab comes up onto the roof, and this is where her faith comes into play. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. And I know that your terror is fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land fate because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the side of Jordan, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for the Lord your God... He is God in heaven, above, and in earth beneath. So she's talking about, okay, so your God who's with you, um, yeah, we've heard about him. we heard about you guys. We know you guys are bad dudes, but we also know that you got some serious firepower from heaven backing you up. And I believe in it. I believe in your God. And we see that there in verse 11 at the end where it says, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. And she believed it so much that she was willing to defy her king, to hide these two spies that she believed were sent by God in her house at great risk to her own personal safety because if the king had figured out that the spies were actually there and she was hiding them, it would not have been well for Rahab. You know, right? And it actually turns out really good for her, because in 12, she continues on to the spies, and she says, Now therefore I pray, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token. Well, so what's interesting there in this particular verse in 12 is the word kindness is actually chesed in Hebrew, and that means a covering. So she says, since I have covered you, will you also cover me and my father's house? So there's interesting stuff there too, right? So covering, you know, we think of, The Lord, a lot of times, we are told that the Lord covers us in our sins, and He covers us as a protection, and that's kind of the same word that Rahab is using here. She's asking for that same type of covering, but she's asking for it from these two spies as representatives of the children of Israel. You know, give me the same covering that your God provides for you when you guys come in and you ransack my city. And not only that, not only protect me, but protect my father, protect my mom, protect my aunties and my uncles and their friends too, and you know... Everybody I love and know and protect them all, which is interesting because Rahab is living by herself, which in that society is very unusual. Probably because of her profession, she is living by herself. Um, You know, she talks about her father's house, so her family obviously lives in a separate house. I'm guessing her family probably didn't really, you know, appreciate her particular choice of profession. Maybe they weren't big fans of that, and so that's why they weren't living with her as well. I don't know, maybe they got in the way of that profession? I don't know. So they weren't living with her. And the men answered her in 14, and said, Our life for yours. If ye utter not this our business, and it shall be, when the Lord hath given us the land, then we will deal kindly and truly with thee. There's that kindness again. We will really cover you. We promise. And then she let them down through the window by a cord. And it was a red cord that she let them down through. And her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. 16. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and after you may go your way. And then at 17, the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. You know, we will follow through on this oath and in 18 behold when we come into the land thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window that thou didst let us down by so this rope that you let us down out of the window tie it to your window so that we know which house to pass by and very similar to the blood over the doorway with the children of israel during moses this time right and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and you know all all your posse bring all your posse into your household and home unto thee And so, you know, bring your disapproving parents and all their friends into your house, and they will be safe as well, as long as you've got that cord on the window. And it shall be that whosoever goeth out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head. It'll be his bad, you know, not yours. We will be guiltless if we knock him down and take him out. But whosoever shall be with thee in thy house, his blood shall be on our head if any hand be upon him. You know, we will not hurt them because your house is going to be a safe place. And if thou utter this business, then we will quit thine oath, which thou hast made us swear. If you tell anybody, the deal is off. And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. And they went, and came into the mountain, and abode there three days, until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought after them throughout all the way, and found them not." So the two men returned, and descended from the mountain, and passed them over, and he came to Joshua, and told him all the things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So, the information that they got from Rahab that everybody there in Jericho was terrified of the children of Israel was helpful to them because obviously they told Joshua this information. Now, interesting to continue on, um, Hebrew rumor surrounding Rahab is that one of those spies, his name, it looks like Salmon, like the fish, but I think it was probably pronounced Salmon, Salmon, um, I think would be the correct Hebrew pronunciation for his name, Salmon came back and actually married Rahab later and made her an honest woman. And we know that because when we go into Matthew 1, when it goes through all the begots, Rahab with Salmon begot Boaz. And if you're like, well, Boaz, is it the same? Yes, it's the same Boaz. So if you remember, Boaz was from like, kind of an important royal lineage so Rahab went from being a harlot but because she had faith and she put that faith into works she was able to marry this Salmon, salmon guy, right? And they had Boaz, and she became part of the lineage that eventually led to Christ being born. She became part of Christ's lineage because of her faith. So I love that about her. You know, no longer were her sins of her younger days, where she was a harlot and whatnot, no longer were those important, but now she was part of, you know, this important line that would actually come back and take on those sins for her. Yet, Girlfriend can just not shake that name, Rahab the harlot, right? I mean, how long was she a harlot? Probably for like five years or something. She had the rest of her life that she was not a harlot. But still, we are calling her Rahab the harlot. And they call her that in Hebrews. And they also call her that this week in James's reading as well. So that is Rahab the harlot's story. I love that story because it talks about putting your faith into action. It also talks about anybody. Anybody can have faith in Christ. You know, I would be super judgy about a prostitute having faith in Jesus Christ and, you know, putting her faith into works, I guess. So anybody, don't be judgy. It can be anyone that can literally save a nation because of their faith in Christ. I thought that was really cool, too. All right, so the next section that we have in Come, Follow Me is The words I speak have the power to hurt or bless others. And it says, Among the rich imagery James used throughout his epistle, some of the most vivid languages found in his counsel about language— Consider making a list of all the ways James described the tongue or mouth. What does each comparison or image suggest about the words we speak? Think of something you can do to bless someone with your words. And so again, that goes back to, you know, following Christ in his example as a teacher. And in the way I talk to my students and treating them like the divine beings and children of God that they are. And, you know, that doesn't mean letting them get away with everything. That means, you know, still disciplining them, but that means teaching them how to behave better, right? But not doing it in a way that would offend the spirit, I guess. And James does talk a lot this week about language and about bridling your tongue. And, you know, he even uses the metaphor of a ship's governor, like the little, like, rudder, I guess, on the back of the ship. That even though it's really small, it has the ability to kind of change, you know, the course of the ship. And I think a lot about my kids at school who come from really hard homes and really hard backgrounds. And how a kind word from somebody that they love at school or that they feel loves them at school could possibly change or save a life and so that's something I'm trying to take to heart and it asks think of something you can do to bless someone with your words one of the things that I think I'm trying to do more and more and again I'm not perfect at this please know that I'm not perfect but I'm trying and what I do is I try and see the child as an individual and instead of saying something like oh you guys did really great in the library today or whatever going up to that child and being like you know what I saw how hard you tried today to sit still and listen when we were reading stories. You did a really good job, you know, name of child, you know, seeing them as an individual, complimenting them as an individual, letting them know as an individual that I see them, that they matter to me, that I'm so glad that they are there at school that day. And, you know, giving the hugs and giving the praise and giving the high fives. And I mean, it's, That's all part of it, I think, and just loving them in the same way that their Heavenly Father would love them. That's really something I think that I have learned from James this week. It's something I already knew. and something I think that I was already doing. But the advice from James this week helped kind of confirm that in my mind, if that makes any sense. So, all right. And that, I think, kind of leads on to the next section. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I should love all people regardless of their circumstances. This is true. All right, but I think you guys can figure that out on your own. I'm not just going to keep rambling just to, you know, fill up time or whatever. So I'm going to go ahead and end the episode there. But I want you guys to please go in and read James and do that kind of activity where you find what is that one scripture that is just going to blow your life wide open? What is that one scripture that talks to you about? what you have going on in your life right now, or that one scripture in James that could really impact your life. Um, again, mine was find your faults and share them. And that's kind of where I think I'm going to keep working on, um, because I think people react to realness. And I'm so I'm going to try and keep keeping it real with you guys. Like, that's going to be me. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm going to be. So keep looking for those different verses that will really impact you. I hope you guys have an awesome week as you study the book of James. And I will see you here next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come, Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash said. Have a question or comment? Email me at said at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.